So it's been a week where I think I've had four, I've had four different texts, four different topics, and so four possible sermons today. So I'm going to preach them all. No, just kidding. Um, first text was uh, my plan a few months ago. Uh, a few months ago, I, I decided I was going to take a break from Samuel, where we have been, and take five weeks to lead us to the cross for Easter and I had a plan for what I was going to preach through, and then I started studying, and I started writing, and I felt like I was going nowhere, like it was just... So then I prayed and prayed, and Lord said, I want you to speak in 1 Corinthians 2. So that's the second text where I, I began writing, and then, uh, then the third and fourth texts may have been slightly coronavirus panic-induced. And uh, from actually some people who called me and said, hey, Psalm 91 would be a good sermon this Sunday and other other texts that I thought of. And ultimately, I hope you don't blame me whenever I went with the passage I felt strongly the Lord told me to go with and not with what other voices told me. So I invite you to be turning in to first Corinthians two. I do believe that if we're in the Bible, that's better than many churches who don't use the Bibles to preach. Or they use one verse from the Bible as a springboard for their own thoughts, opening up the Bible to see what it says, and expounding on that text is a far cry better. Yet my faith goes further, that while preaching the Bible is good, preaching what God wants to say on a given Sunday from the Bible is better. <laughs> we, we have an active faith, you and I, uh, a faith that God speaks to us daily, and He speaks to us timely, and He speaks to us purposefully. So let's just consider our text this morning. I invite you to stand for the reading, the hearing of the Lord's Word. If you're able to stand in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, I'll be reading and teaching today from a personal translation that I like called the Modern English Version. Uh, 1 Corinthians, again, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We read, Brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech, or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's pray. Father, we trust you to be able to speak to us loud and clear. We do desire to see Jesus Christ and him crucified. We desire to hear it plainly. Father, we pray that the things you say would seep into our souls, that we would utilize them for your lifting you up, glorifying you, and that we would build others up as well. So I pray that it is you and you alone who speaks. And in Jesus Christ, our Savior's name, we pray it. Amen. You may be seated. Do you hear what Paul calls the cross, the gospel, in just these five verses? He calls it the very testimony of God. He says it is so significant that it's worth soul attention in his first visit to the Corinthians. 
It was worth so much his sole attention that Paul intentionally held back embellishing or expounding and expanding or enticing his hearers. He calls the, 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 the gospel, the cross, a demonstration of the spirit and of power. And so much so, he calls the cross worthy of any person's faith. For it is the very power of God that would sustain such a person. Corinth, where Paul went to, can be quickly and accurately, in my mind, described in many ways as an ancient pagan Las Vegas on steroids. <laughs> We're talking about pagan temples where worshipers did perverted things, godlessness, Religious pluralism where the nasty worship of gods were allowed, tolerated, and even celebrated. And so, I wonder if Paul shows up and, and says that this is the most basic of square ones that I have to start at. So, you know, some people that you might talk to may not be Christian, but they have Christian background. Maybe they've been to church on an Easter or a Christmas. Maybe they've talked before with other folks about Christian ideas. Paul's showing up and he's not finding any devout Jews to even have a beginning context. He's finding people who have known nothing but sexual sin in the form of idolatry, who know and practice gluttony, who can't spell nor ever have they even heard of in any big sense Yahweh. They don't know Jesus. And while you and I maybe can't identify with that, I have found it somewhat awkward or even ironic that sometimes we Christians can error in a similar way with our heads so down deep into Christian culture and the world. See, it's like whenever you go down Woodland Road and you get to Hogsback, and once in a while, you take it in. <laughs> you look at the rolling hills, you, you look at the fog over Kamii, you look at beams of sunlight bursting through the clouds, hitting the side of the tree-covered hill. And finally, upon looking at it, you at once again thank God that you live in such an amazingly scenic place. And I want to likewise say that sometimes the cross becomes that for us Christians. That sometimes we're living in the Christian bubble. That we end up passing by the cross without looking at it and without thanking God in the same way we pass by hogs back and we're more interested in what the radio is telling us than we are of the view. You hear that? When the cross really is, really should be always relevant, the cross is always central to the Christian life. Paul has a novel idea. Paul has a single focus in his witness. Paul might have more courage than you or I. Maybe it's because Paul was a, a zealous person. He was a zealous, faithful student of Judaism. He studied so much that he became brave, bold, fierce, to the point of arrogant, that he was so right, and if anyone was so wrong, they would hear about it. And for Paul's teaching, he was brainwashed into thinking that it's all about your works, it's all about the temple, it's all about being Jewish, it's all about being holy. And he held these things up together and he balanced them and he juggled them. And then this Jesus comes along and Jesus is saying, you don't have what it takes to complete the works. The temple is no longer 
an effective, righteous witness. Rather, it's the exact opposite. And being Jewish means nothing when God Himself can make Jews from rocks, but it's about an inner circumcision of the heart, and it's about faith in God. And it's about the, the alien, foreign holiness of God living in you and changing you from the inside out. And suddenly Paul's knowledge prompts him to hate and attack everything about Jesus from town to town, village to village, until Jesus shows up. After he died, after Jesus left the earth, Jesus shows up to Paul and he tells Paul, your plans are over. Your life is mine. You were wrong. I'm here to let you know. And Paul is humbled. But humble people can still be zealous people. And so Paul is now going from town to town, village to village, bringing Christ to people. And he has a novel idea in how he does that. He, he showed up when there was no doubt rampant, corrupt, horrific, murderous, wrath-provoking sin taking place. And he didn't address those things. He showed up and he says, Brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. And if you think about it, that makes sense, because listen to what Paul is saying. He brings when he brings Christ the testimony of God. You catch that? This is God speaking. This is God saying something here. This is the the universe maker, the star breather, the sovereign over all things, the sovereign from eternity to eternity. And this is his testimony. And so the point is, Paul is saying, I didn't try to fluff it up. It's kind of presumptuous. Friends, who are we to say that we can improve on this sort of presentation? You probably catch on to this in my preaching, but I love pressing the Scriptures. I love pressing them really hard, not because I doubt them, but because I know, expect, and believe that they can handle pressure. And pressing them to bring out all I can builds up faith because it draws us closer to their meaning. And I love this, that when the gospel accounts are brought under the examining table, I love that they present so many things that are miraculous and amazing, but the gospel writers never sensationalize it. Here's what I'm saying. When when Jesus walks on water, the gospel writers just report what he did. They never say, and the waves were billowing and... Peter saw Jesus' foot hit the top of the water and there was no suggestion of Jesus' foot going any deeper and he wasn't seeking and with a sweaty forehead and a disbelieving countenance, Peter called out, and if it is you, Jesus, tell me to walk on the water. No gospel account writers are they are much quicker than that, thankfully, or else we'd read a long book. And I believe it's quick because they're not writing to shock and awe. <laughs> they're just reporting facts. So Paul is saying to the Corinthian Christians, I just came to tell you plainly what happened. Plainly the testimony of God, because I want you to hear that, and I don't want my words to steal any thunder. Do you hear that? I can tell you this, that sometimes I think I need to help the gospel out. I just officiated another funeral yesterday, and I don't know how many times I sit there pulling my hair out writing funeral sermons, because... Two truths exist uh, when I write those sermons. Two truths that sometimes want to decide what I say. And those truths are, I do need to share the gospel. 
Because some unsaved people might be there. But then the second truth is, is, wow, when you really write it down and think about how an unsaved person might hear it, it sounds really weird. Right? Regardless of, of how you or I think it sounds, though, we need to share it without apology. We need to share it without embellishment. We need to share it as is, period. Even if it sounds weird, and I won't lie, it does. <laughs> Paul knows that. But still, Paul brings the testimony of God. And in the next verse, he describes it. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul is saying, when he walks away from Corinth, when conversation comes up in Corinth. Oh, you remember Paul, that, that once Christian hater, but now he's a preacher. And what was he about? And it is Paul's hope that the answer would be heard. He kept telling us about Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's it. Consider the Corinthian people. What Paul didn't want them to say was Paul was really upset with our pagan sex rituals. We don't know why. I mean, Paul would, would get there eventually if the Corinthians became Christians, it wasn't that Paul was telling us that Jesus prophesied a day of judgment in the near future. Paul would get there if the Corinthians became Christians. But what Paul was wanted, we heard Christ and him crucified. And here's what I'm saying. Sometimes concerning your lost loved ones or concerning your enemies who may also not be Christian, whether that be personal or political or cultural enemies, we need to have this heart here. We need to have this heart here. May it be our desire that they may not know anything among them except Christ and Him crucified. Here's what I'm guilty of personally, because none of you struggle like I do. I'm so glad for that. They really... This is what I'm thinking. They really need to stop doing this sin. It's going to end them up in hell. Trust me, Paul could have said that all over the place in Corinth. What I'm also guilty of personally is demonizing political opponents or political leaders. Paul and Peter told Christians to honor and pray for the emperor who literally murdered Christians. Because Paul and Peter wanted the cross and wanted Christ and Him crucified to be given to the emperors. Just look at the end of the book of Acts when many a Christian's desire, Paul has the ears of political leaders in his day. With that amount of time that he had their ears, what did he tell them? You can go read it. And I can tell you why you and I might be quick to focus on loved one's sins as opposed to focusing on their Savior. We're more focused on crucifying them than we are giving them Christ and Him crucified. And here's why that we might be quicker to demonize political opponents and leaders as opposed to honor, pray, and hope that they might encounter Christ and Him crucified. There are two concepts Related to this that I want to draw out from Paul's letter here in 1 Corinthians. Before 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul talks about how the preaching of the cross can land on hearers. And after 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul talks about how more mature subjects for the saved always comes back to the cross. Before 1 Corinthians 2.2, Paul talks about how the cross can land on hearers. Look with me back one chapter, specifically beginning with 1 Corinthians 
And look through verse 25 with me. Paul says, For to those who are perishing, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made the wisdom of this world foolish? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. For the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, we preach Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So first, Paul presents two groups. Those who are perishing, those who are being saved. Don't don't hear this as predetermined subjects. Because consider verse 21, he describes those as being saved as those who believe. So the perishing, the unbelieving, the saved, the believing. And in those two groups, Paul says the preaching of the cross lands differently. See, for, for the perishing, for the unsaved, the preaching of the cross is foolishness. And this word foolishness in verse 18 is literally a term we still use figuratively because the term is dull. I mean, you you use this phrase, right? Well, Kevin, he's just a little bit dull, poor guy. (laughs) I have encountered people who think the cross is foolish. This is what I'm I'm talking about when I'm writing funeral sermons. I can hear unbelievers already. How does a 2,000-year-old Jewish man who fancied himself God but was executed by both his religious leaders and his political leaders, how does that guy dying do a lick of anything concerning our so-called sins and God? I mean, Paul is aware of how it sounds. And let's be honest, in at least the idea of working for our salvation... And God loves and saves the good guys and he hates and damns the bad guys. That sounds a little bit maybe more sensible. But to throw Jesus into the mix, well, as Paul says in verse 22 and verse 23, there are still these receptions for the unbelievers. Some want a sign and others just want wisdom from it. How many people do you know? Well, if God made himself apparent to me, I'd believe I can't go on blind faith. I can't read a bunch of words and just affirm it's true. i got to see something real. Angels and miracles, they want a sign. Jesus, in fact, gave the Jews, those who looked for a sign, He gave them signs over and over and over. He turned water into wine. He fed thousands of people with a kid's lunchbox. He healed person after person. He exercised demons. He raised people from the dead. Eventually, He rose from the dead. How many signs do they need? Others, the Greeks, basically a catch-all term for Paul referring to non-Jews, they, these Greeks seek wisdom. And many people paint Jesus up to be the source of wisdom, because he is, and then they just sell his wisdom, they don't sell his cross. Which if, which if all you're after is wisdom and not the cross, you're eventually going to bed heads with Jesus. You'll only listen so far. Don't, don't judge, I like that. I'm God, I'll just skip over that part. Love the widows, care for the orphans, receive the children. I like that. Love me, obey me, do what I say. 
I'll just skip over that. Love sinners, forgive sinners. I like that. It's loving unconditionally. Repent of sin. Your sins deserve punishment. Embrace and believe what, what I've accomplished by dying on the cross for the punishment of your sins. Well, that's religious hokey pokey. Just give me more wisdom, Jesus. The cross is a stumbling block. But for those who are being saved, for the believer, Christ is the power of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. Christ is God's power to overcome the most dreaded enemies the world has ever known. The death of the body, more so the death of the soul. Christ is God's power in visible form to overcome death. He resurrected. And because of the death of the body is the penalty of sin, so Christ is sent. He is blameless without sin. And so He conquers the grave. He's the very power of God. He's also the very wisdom of God in that He has mastered the art of redemption. He has provided the way of salvation so much so that He's fooled the very powers of evil into bring it about. We'll talk about that as we move on to the second concept I bring out. So we, we, we've talked about how the gospel can land on hearers, either as foolish or as the very power and wisdom of God. But Paul, after 1 Corinthians 2.2, talks about how even for the saved and the believing, the source of all power and wisdom still comes back to the cross. In many ways, our text today is a great dissertation on what the Christian life is about and what Christians should speak on and preach on the cross. But after Paul makes this great declaration of Christ and him crucified and knowing nothing other than that, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, 6, yet we speak wisdom among those who are mature. I wonder if you hear the contrast in verses one through five. He says, when I came to you, it was Christ and Him crucified. That's it. As in, that's all you needed to hear. That's all you could handle. But then here in verse 6, among the mature, we, presumably Paul and other Christian teachers, speak wisdom. Although not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. In other words, not a worldly wisdom. Not a superfluous, educated wisdom. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Well, that really clears it up for you, right? Paul's just talking about mysterious hidden wisdom. That certainly lets us in on the details. No. Actually, Paul begins to peel back what he means in the next verse, though. None of the rulers of this age knew it, for had they known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. What's Paul saying here? What are the rulers of this age? Some say, and I've, I have said, it was the physical rulers of this age, the Jewish leaders, the Roman leaders. Others I've heard them compare to Paul's language in Ephesians 6.12. And who else are the rulers of this age? The devil, the demons. So, God's wisdom is again using the anger, greed, and murderous tendencies of those who would kill Jesus both physical and spiritual, and he would still bring redemption and bring salvation for the world out of crucifying the Lord of glory. But do you hear this in the context of the earlier verses? The wisdom is still sourced from Christ and Him crucified. Saints 
Christians still need the gospel. Paul continues back here in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, that it is only Christ and him crucified and it is only that message that saves. And so for the Corinthians, Paul continues, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. Have you been here before? I got to tell you, as a pastor, I'm tempted. I don't know how many funeral sermons I craft and where, though I wouldn't word it this way, but I'm tempted to obscure the cross, right? I'm tempted to to craft my message. How can I be most persuasive and how can I say what makes most sense without confusing them with the cross? Because as Paul talked about back in 1 Corinthians 1, the cross can be foolish to some. And Paul's not saying that his usual mode is weakness, fear, trembling, and unwise. If you read any of his letters, you'll find a man who's very wise. So wise that Peter in his epistle says, Now I know Paul's hard to read, but he's still Scripture. Now that's Kevin's lame version of the Bible. In 2 Peter three fifteen through 16 Paul's saying that he will put aside his own wise-sounding words for the sake of the cross. He's saying that arrogance, pride, and worldly wisdom can take the focus off the message and put it on the messenger. And so the warning is, is do not underestimate presenting the cross and the cross alone. You and I know how it sounds, even so. You and I know that some will reject it, even so. You and I know everybody thinks they've heard it, even so. Paul says for the Corinthians, when he brings Jesus Christ and him crucified, it comes in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When the cross is presented singularly for what it is, it brings with it a demonstration of the spirit and of the power of God. And so I think... It would be necessary now to present to you the cross in the very words of Paul. I'm pulling the bare gospel story together, but from the words of Paul around his letters. And so we're going to hear the story of the cross that when the fullness, excuse me, that when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born from a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. He was in the form of God, and he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in the form of man, um, a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so, while we were yet weak in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Rarely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Therefore, God highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. 
And if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Friends, here is where your faith should stand. In the cross of Christ. In fact, it's the only place it can stand. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so why do I at times retreat back into a wisdom of man, thinking that there I will find a power that may persuade people to come to him when God has already given a testimony? We can't improve on that. God has given us the way of salvation. And whether some call it foolish, whether some call it lacking pomp and pizzazz, whether some say it lacks some sort of wisdom that they would like, the fact remains, the truth remains, that Jesus Christ and Him crucified is what will save. Do you need the cross today? Do you need to be reminded of the cross so that you might lead others to the cross? Friends, I dare you to be the sort of person that Paul wanted to be here to the Corinthians. I dare you to be the person of whom others say they told me about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They, they said to me that I need to know Jesus and He crucified. They showed me a life of Jesus and His being crucified. That's what we're called to be. Yes, we of course pray for believing hearts and saved souls. But we can't do anything about what hearers do. But... We can do something about what hearers hear. Amen? Amen. And let the cross speak for itself. Let's pray. Father, it pleased you to save people from the foolishness we speak so that their faith would rest in the power of God. You've given us a crazy, weird story to share to people. And even sharing that as an act of faith, to check our motives, to check our mind before we share with people and say, wait, what am I about to say here? Even so, the fact that you use that crazy, weird story to save people It's a miracle in of itself. And it works because it's true. It's the only thing that does save. It's a gruesome story. Some people don't like to hear it. There's lots of bloods and guts. It's a crazy story. Some people don't understand how sins are saved from you dying on a cross. But it's a great story. And we love you and we love the cross. It is wonderful to us. So, Father, we pray that as we think about the cross today and in the weeks to come, that you would give us a burning passion and desire to see many saved with the cross of Christ. And would you warm our hearts again? Would you give us those moments as we look at hogs back and take it in that we would do likewise to your cross? And would you give us those moments daily? Father, we ask and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.